Um, the very last message in a 13-week series we've been doing since we started in the fall, um, which we've called How to Change. Um, the idea um, that God has called us just as we are, um, without having to change, without having to clean ourselves up. Um, but as a result of coming to Christ as we are, we don't leave as we are. When we come to Christ, he saves us, transforms us, and then we begin the rest of our lives on a path to uh, grow in godliness. Um, and we've been covering that over 13 weeks because it can be a very descriptive um, as well as a very um, elaborate process. There's a lot of pieces of it. And when we deal with a lot of those pieces, we can kind of get lost in uh, some of the details. We can start to think that um, the process can be incredibly complicated. Um, but actually, the Bible does get down um, to a very simple idea. A very simple idea about the truth of change um, that you need to not forget. Um, and really, that simple truth is all that we're going to cover as we sum up our series. And what we're really trying to tackle in this very last uh, session um, is that there is one ultimate truth that's going to stabilize change for you, that's going to make sure that you're changing the right way, that you're constantly motivated to change, and that so you can endure, that no matter what other struggles come up, you'll be able to keep changing in a way that is truly godly. Uh, but in order to do that, I actually need to explain to you a fifth struggle um, in your journey to change. The last four weeks, we've covered four struggles of change, um, temptation, Satan's, uh, Satan's uh, battle plan against us. Um, we've covered suffering and we've covered other people. And all of those are part of God's plan to change you. They're not accidental things in the way of change, but actually essential parts of God's sovereign plan to help you change. But today we're actually going to cover the most difficult struggle to overcome that's going to lead us into this final thing that you need to keep in mind and constantly recall in your path to change. And that last struggle is actually yourself. The last hurdle that's in the way of you changing is actually you. Um, and I don't mean that metaphorically. I mean that literally. Um, you are in a constant battle with yourself. Now, what I mean by this, I can kind of explain a little bit. I explain it by starting with this sentence. You talk to yourself more than anyone else talks to you. I don't mean you're off in a corner and you're like a crazy person, like muttering random things to yourself. What I mean is that as you go through the world, you are explaining the world back to yourself. You've been built by God and designed by God um, to live in the world and understand it and evaluate it. You could even say you interpret the world every single day and it reshapes and changes you. Um, we covered way back at the beginning of this series how your heart works. You've been designed by God to think things, to desire things, and then to do things. And that way, that function is working every single day. You look at things and you make judgments and it changes the way you live, sometimes in small ways and sometimes in very large ways. And you talk to yourself about what your interpretation of the world is. Your worldview is constantly being reshaped by yourself. And the reason I say that this is important and why you are a struggle to yourself is that every single one of us, in many different ways, is misinterpreting the world to ourselves every single day. Every single day we are making little judgments about how the world works and how I'm supposed to live in it. And many of them are actually wrong. They're misinterpretations of the world. 
There's lots of things that we take for granted as true, and they actually aren't true. And there's lots of things we take for granted as important or things that we want, but they're actually not important. And we actually shouldn't want them the way we want them with the same intensity, or maybe we shouldn't actually want them at all. There's many feelings that we have uh, that we feel. There's many things that we don't have and we want. And when we don't have them or we don't deal with our feelings in the correct way, we can often get into so much anxiety or hopelessness or frustration um, that we don't feel like change is possible. There's actually many different ways that change is difficult in the same way. When you say certain statements to yourself, for example... This is just the way I am. This is just the personality that God gave me. This is just the way that I think. Any of those things can be very, very difficult for change if you have misinterpretations in your life. If you've looked at the world and you said, this is the way things are, and you haven't realized that's actually not the way things are. And because of that, you actually need to Talk to yourself, but talk to yourself in the right way. A very famous pastor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, once uh, put the question like this. Have you ever realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Do you realize that you might be unhappy because you are listening to yourself more than you are talking to yourself? Now, what he meant is that we often tell ourselves misinterpretations about life all the time but they don't get corrected. We listen to things that are wrong, but we don't talk back to them and say, this is wrong. We don't say, no, actually, this is the way life is. This is the way I need to think. And that happens all the time in normal life. Sometimes that happens because we have patterns and routines. We take for granted that certain things are normal. It's just part of my life. We think, I've never thought a different way about this. I've just always done things that way. And because things are comfortable, we don't notice that things might actually be misinterpreted. But often, it's easy to miss them too for the reason that the world is very, very comfortable with your misinterpretations. The world is very fine with looking at your life and saying, well, that's okay for you. And if it's okay for you, then you just keep living your life. But at the same time, even though the world says it's very comfortable with your misinterpretations, the world is also constantly trying to interpret life for you. And as we've explained many times in this series that this world is very broken and very sinful. And every single day you are receiving information and data and you're being told a story. And that story is trying to tell you a certain way to interpret life. And many of those things are misinterpretations the problem is that we will so often take them without talking back to them and addressing them with truth and therefore as we conclude this series and as we go through this final sermon on how to change the idea is that you don't need to only understand how to change what you also need to be able to do is ground your thinking at the most basic truth that shapes all your other interpretations, the one important truth that will stabilize everything else in your life, the one lens that will help you see the world as you are and help you change the way God calls you to change, the one truth that will establish a pattern in your life that will make sure that you constantly grow 
in godliness. And that one truth is the gospel. What you need to do, and the last thing we're covering today is, you need to preach the gospel to yourself. You need to be able to understand not just the truth of how God saves sinners, but you need to constantly tell it to yourself every single day. Now, you might think that that's very strange. Because if you were a Christian, you would say, well, I'm a Christian because I understand the gospel. But the fact is that most Christians have a difficult time sometimes articulating the gospel, being able to say it or leaving certain things out. And the problem is we don't actually remember and recall the gospel properly all the time. And it leads to many interpretations. And it's actually something scripture tells us about a lot. So, for example, in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, Paul says this to Titus, who's a budding pastor. He's learning how to pastor, and this is what he tells him. He says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. That's the gospel. God came and brought salvation to his people. And then he explains that it does this. The salvation that's been given to all people trains us. It trains us. Now, what is training? Training means growing, it's changing, it's being better at something you weren't good at before. And what Paul says to Titus in Titus chapter 2 is that the gospel trains you. You don't just hear the information of the gospel and then you're good. You constantly go back to it, and the more you rehearse it in your mind, the more it trains you. And Paul tells Titus that one of the things it trains you in is renouncing ungodliness, which means being able to look at ungodliness and say, this is ungodly, and therefore I do not want this. I should not do this. It also says it renounces worldly passions, which is a way of saying the world wants this stuff, and it's led by a passionate desire to have these things, but those things are wrong. And so I need to be able to use the gospel to say those things are wrong. And he continues with examples like being able to be living self-controlled, to be upright, to be godly, and to be pure. All of those things happen when you recall the gospel and it trains you. Another really good example of this actually is Galatians chapter 2 verse 14, which is very fascinating because it shows actually a very prominent Christian who forgot to rehearse the gospel to himself. And that's the apostle Peter. Now, the Apostle Peter made a lot of mistakes in his life, and he never became an unchristian. He was always saved by Christ. But the problem was that didn't mean that the gospel was shaping all of his life properly. When Paul went to the church in Jerusalem, he met Peter, and Peter was hanging out with Jewish people without hanging out with Gentile people. Now, the gospel called all the apostles to go out to all of the Gentiles, to all people who weren't Jewish, and say, the gospel of salvation is available for you, too. But Peter was being so exclusive with the Jewish people that it actually didn't seem like he believed that. And so in Galatians chapter 2, 14, Paul says that I went to Peter and I called him out. And he says the reason was because Peter's conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. He could articulate the gospel, but he wasn't living like he believed the gospel. And those examples are good examples for us to understand if apostles like Peter needed the reminder of the gospel, then we definitely need a reminder of the gospel as well. The obvious place that we have to go from that actually is to just understand the gospel. Because all of us need both a reminder of the gospel because we love it and want it, but we also need it. Because if we can't articulate or understand the gospel, then everything else doesn't matter. And even if we think we know the gospel, we need to make sure that we can articulate it properly. 
And one of the most wonderful parts of the New Testament that actually explains the gospel in a single verse is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 21. Um, it'll probably be on the screen behind me, but if not, you can always go in your Bibles to there as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Paul there says this. He says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, there's a lot of he's and him's in there, but basically what Paul's explaining is for our sake, God the Father made Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, before we explain that, let me give you an illustration to kind of set the pace here. Uh, imagine you're in your sports team, which many of you are. You're doing track, you're doing gymnastics, you're doing really intense chess, whatever it is. And you come home and you sweat a lot. That's why I said intense chess. You might need to find a chiller version of chess if you're sweating a lot. But you come home and you're very sweaty and you come in and dinner's about to be finished. And your mom or your dad turns to you and says, okay, we're going to have dinner. We're going to sit down as a family, uh, but you smell terrible. Uh, so you need to go and do two things. One, you need to go and shower. And also you need to put on a clean set of clothes. Because if you don't, you're going to smell terrible and you're going to ruin our whole family dinner. And so you go and do that. Now, what would your family say if you went and you had a shower, but then you put on the same clothes that you just went and were sweaty in? You didn't do it properly. You didn't do the assignment. Nice try. Go back. You can't do one. Well, what if we flip it? What if you don't take a shower, but you change your clothes? Well, now am I okay? No, absolutely not. You still smell terrible. Two things need to happen. You need to be cleaned and you need to be clothed. If not, uh, then you can't come to the table. Now, the gospel in a nutshell is a very similar idea. God is a holy God, which means he must have a certain kind of person in his presence. And if a certain kind of person that is a sinner comes into his presence, they will be destroyed. They cannot be in the presence of God and lived, which means any sinner needs two things to be right with God. Number one, they need to be cleaned. They need a spiritual shower. But the second thing is they need to be clothed. And they need spiritual clothes to do that. And in 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says that Christ did both of those things because God the Father sent him to do those very things. The first thing is we were spiritually cleaned. And Paul says that when he says Christ was made to be sin. Now, what he means is that our sin needs to be punished by a holy and just God. But if God punished our sins, we'd be in hell. That's what hell is. It is the righteous, just, holy punishment for our sins. But instead of us receiving hell, God the Father put all of our sin onto Christ. And in that sense, all of the cleaning we needed to do, all of the dirt that we couldn't get rid of, all of it was put on Christ. And as a result of that, we could be forgiven. Christ was considered sin on the cross. And when he became sin, he became guilty instead of us. He became subjected to hell instead of us. And he was punished for our sins instead of us. And therefore, we've been forgiven because Christ was made to be sin. But again, that's just the spiritual shower. There's something else we need as well, which we, we need to be spiritually clothed. Which means we don't need to just be forgiven of our sins. We need to have lived a perfect life. Christ even tells his people point blank this in Matthew chapter 5, 48, when he says, you must be perfect. That's not a metaphor. That's literal. 
You must live a perfect, obedient, sinful life, or a righteous God cannot have you in his presence. And yet Christ dealt with that too. When some of you guys were getting baptized, I asked you uh, a number of questions, but this is one question that I asked some of you guys, you might remember. When Christ came at Christmas and he was laid in a manger as a baby, why couldn't he die right then? Right? Why didn't he have to wait 33 years to die on a cross? And the reason is because he not lived a life yet. He needed to live a perfect, obedient life for this reason, that his life of perfection needed to be given to us. What happened on the cross is sometimes called the great exchange, which means not only was all of your sin forgiven because it was taken off of you, you were spiritually cleansed and it was put on Christ, but his perfect life that he lived was also given to you as well. He took your sin and he gave you his righteousness, which means the gospel is explaining that Christ not only became sin, but he knew no sin. He didn't have a relationship with sin. He had a perfect life of obedience and he never, ever failed at any temptation ever. And then because of that on the cross, he gave us his righteousness so that as Paul says, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. All of us who have sinned and have been disobedient have been spiritually cleaned and spiritually clothed. And the assurance we have of that, Paul says, in many places, but namely in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The assurance we have is that Jesus not only died, but he rose again. And when he rose from the dead, he proved that death had no hold on himself. And anyone who believes in him has the same future. That in Christ, not because of what they do, but what if Christ has done for them, they might have hope. That this life was not about their perfection or anything they have done, but what Christ has done for them. Therefore, Paul says in Philippians 3.9, Through Christ, I have a righteousness that comes through faith. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. There is one thing all Christians are called to do. Believe in Christ. If you believe in Christ, your sin is cleansed and you are clothed in Christ's righteousness. That is the gospel. The gospel gets much deeper with many other layers to it, but the baseline gospel is that. Now, here's the thing. Many of you might know that already. That might not be news to many of you. You may have been able to articulate all of that back to me and be able to say many more verses than I shared with you. But the reality is we still need to not only recall that and articulate that, we need to tell ourselves that gospel every single day. And the reason is because even though the gospel saves us, we are still dealing with sin. We're not perfect yet. We will only be perfect once we die and see Christ or Christ returns. But until then, we are still struggling. And we often, when we don't remember the gospel, we are prone to one of two extremes. When we don't recall the gospel, there's two sides of a coin that we can constantly fall on, which makes it very, very difficult to grow. Here are those two extremes. The first extreme is that we're prone to self-righteousness. When you don't preach the gospel to yourself, you can become very self-righteous. A very famous Puritan named Thomas Brooks has a helpful illustration. Imagine there's two guys who come to hang out with each other, okay? There's guy number one, and then there's guy number two. Guy number one brings a pile of his most valuable things. And his most valuable things are iron and copper, you know, so a metal that's precious, but it's only so valuable. 
And then guy number two comes and he also brings an equal pile of stuff, but it's not iron and copper, it's gold and silver, much more valuable. Now imagine guy number one says to guy number two, hey, guy number two, look at my pile of stuff. I have more iron and copper than you, and therefore I am richer than you, ignoring the more valuable pile of metals that the other guy has. Now guy number two, if he's a normal guy, will tell guy number one, you're nuts, dude. You're like ignoring this pile. You're ignoring everything that is valuable. He says, that's not only ridiculous, that's madness. But the problem is, as Thomas Brooks was saying, that madness is so typical of even Christians. Christians will often have two piles in front of them. One pile will be their knowledge of God, their works for God, and their spiritual successes for God. Maybe they've evangelized a person or two that has come to know Christ. Maybe uh, they read scripture every single Sunday morning. Maybe they lead a Bible study. Maybe they can memorize an entire book of the Bible. That's pile number one. And then there's pile number two, which is just Christ. It's just Christ. And we will say pile number two is important, but we'll get fixated on pile number one. And we'll think we're rich because we are piling and piling and piling onto pile number one, ignoring Christ in pile number two. Christians tend to do this. Paul had the exact same illustration in his mind in Philippians chapter three when he says, I have taken all of my things, my status, my works, my titles, and it is rubbish. And the appropriate word for rubbish is defecation which you probably know what that is. He says, why is it rubbish? Because it is not Christ. The problem with self-righteousness when we forget the gospel is we will think we can bring something to make us valuable before God. We will think the only way I will be valuable before God is if I compare myself to other people and I'm better than them. Or I've done a lot of good things and so I'm so much better than other people or I go to church constantly And I read my Bible daily, but none of that is the gospel. None of that changes our value before God. And none of that, most importantly, earns us heaven. And when we do think that we can bring value to God based on our works and what we've done, things get weird. That's the simplest way to say it. We can start thinking things like this. God, you are not coming through to me. I read my Bible every day this month, and you have not helped my grades improve. What is going on? We can say, God, why won't you help me get the things I need? But we won't take a second guess and ask, does the Bible say the things I want are the things I need? We'll say, God, my circumstances are really hard, and I'm being really faithful. Why aren't you making life easier for me? When we think we can bring the value to God and that he works on a barter system, it's probably evidence that we're not preaching the gospel to ourselves. But there's a second extreme on this side. One is self-righteousness. But there's another side that seems to be so opposite, but it's actually got the same issue. And that second issue is shame. Christians are prone to shame. Shame is the opposite of self-righteousness, but it comes from the same place when you're looking at pile number one. Instead of looking at your works and saying, I've got so much to give God, 
You actually look at your pile and you say, wow, that's nothing compared to this over here. Or that's nothing compared to this guy's pile of the same stuff. I've got nothing. God must hate me. There's no way God would want to hang out with me. There's no way that I can make that pile even close to this. So I just need to give up. There's no way to ease my guilt. There's no way to be unashamed. There's no way to be valuable before God. Shame can make us say things like, I keep struggling with the same sin. In fact, I think the same sin is getting worse. There's no way I can change. There's no way I can make up for how stubborn I am in this sin. Shame can make you say, if God really knew me, he wouldn't love me. If he saw my heart, he wouldn't want it. Shame can make you say, I'm struggling to love a spiritual discipline or to obey, so I must not be a Christian. And if I'm not a Christian, then God doesn't love me. Christ would not be merciful to a failure like me. The problem is that sometimes shame is the result of thinking your friendship with God is like a friendship with a human friend. Imagine someone at school that you thought was really, really cool. They were really nice and they were funny and they were kind to you. But you know that you make mistakes. You know that you might not live up to their expectations. And so a result of that, you think that it's only a matter of time before they don't want to hang out with you anymore. We can read relationships with people and then we can interpret that relationship as if that's what our relationship with God looks like. And as a result, we're left with this unending cycle of guilt that feels like it can never get rid of. Self-righteousness and shame, those are the true extremes. The problem is that both of those deny the gospel. And I'm not saying unbelievers do that. I'm saying Christians do that. We get obsessed with pile number one because we know the Bible talks about pile number one. Works are important. God calls me to change. And yet we'll be so fixated on this that we'll forget that that means nothing in comparison to Christ. Why does God love me or why does God not love me? It has nothing to do with pile number one. Because you can never make the iron and copper into gold. But Christ can. But it's not through changing this. It's through providing this. The reality is that the gospel is something that we need to remember all the time, that we need to replay all the time so that we change properly. What I want to do in the time that I have left with you quickly is to explain to you how. How is it that you can preach yourself the gospel every day? How can you rehearse the truths of the gospel in such a way that you not just understand the gospel, not just that you believe the gospel, but that you live in the gospel? That the gospel actually affects your life. That the gospel actually changes your conduct. And that you do everything that you do for Christ, but you do it with hope and joy. Which is what Christ promises to us. He wants to give us joy and hope. Which means we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. I've broken this down as simply as I can into four basic truths. And all of them are essential to the gospel. All of them are essential to preach to yourself every single day. So let's go through these four truths of how the gospel should be remembered every day. Truth number one, you need to tell yourself every day. Number one, I am a sinner. My identity is a sinner. 
Christ tells a story to his disciples in Luke chapter 18, verses 13 to 14. You've probably heard it before. It's a story in which two men go into the temple to worship God, and specifically to give something to God. These two men are a Pharisee, which is the most religiously uh, gifted and loved leadership in Jerusalem. And the other man is a tax collector, probably the most hated of anyone in Jerusalem. The Pharisee, Jesus says, comes into the temple and he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. And then he lists all of his righteous deeds. He brings palm number one and he says, I'm not like them and I am like this. I'm valuable, God. But then there's a tax collector who's a traitor, who's of the people, but the people hate him, believing that he's given up on his people and instead loved an empire and an emperor that hates the Jewish people instead of the people that he was born to. And yet this so-called despicable man, he goes into the temple as well. And it says he was standing far off and he wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. He's in shame. And yet Christ says he beats his breasts and he says this, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Christ ends the parable saying this in verse 14. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, he went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who humbles himself will be exalted and everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. That parable would have shocked everyone in Jerusalem. We've heard it so many times we don't really get shocked by it anymore. But this is the idea. You must approach God as a sinner. Have you ever felt ashamed to admit your sin to God? We might all know that God knows that we're sinners, but it's hard to admit it. Think about the last time that you sinned and it really, really rested on your conscience. What's the first thing you did? Now, I can't read your mind, but my guess is one of the first things you thought that helped you feel less guilty is this. God, I'll do better next time. I won't sin this way next time. I'm going to grow. I'm going to do better. And something inside us feels a little bit of the guilt gotten rid of. Here's the problem. That's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. The gospel says, God, I did that and I know it's sin and I don't want to do that anymore. Be merciful to me, a sinner. If you are dealing with self-righteousness, you will never, ever be humbled. Because you're trying to say, God, I can give you value. And the gospel will tell you, humble yourself. You can't be better before God. You're better because of Christ. Admit you have nothing to offer. And God will demonstrate his mercy to you. And it's even sweeter for those of you who are struggling with shame. Instead of saying, God, I'm going to improve. Just admit, God, I'm going to fall into sin tomorrow too. Maybe it's a different sin. It's probably going to be the same sin. And yet, Father, I need mercy. Father, all I have is my sin. But all you have in the gospel is grace. Can I please have your grace? And the reality is that is exactly how you're supposed to approach Christ. You're supposed to come to the altar with nothing so that you can rely on God the way you're supposed to, which is dependency. That Christ would be exalted as he humbles you. 
and that your guilt and your shame might be replaced with a humility that understands way more deeply than the self-righteous man how gracious and how loving God is. But if you can't admit that you're a sinner and have nothing before God, you will never experience the depth of the grace of God. That's truth number one, is to remember that you're a sinner. Number two goes right from it, which is this. Remember that all of my sin is completely forgiven. All of my sin is completely forgiven. Underline the words all and completely, because they're key. Paul says this in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, a book that we studied last year. Paul says, God made us alive together with Christ, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Here's a question. It's not a trick question. Paul says our trespasses were forgiven. How many of our trespasses were forgiven? All our trespasses. All of them. Every sin you have sinned, every sin you are doing now, every sin you will do in the future, all of it, all of it is forgiven. And God in his omniscient, sovereign grace has listed every sin you will ever commit and have and has put it on a record of debt and then he put it on the cross never to be used against you again. Now here's the problem. We don't live like that's true. We do not live like that's true because we tell ourselves in our self-righteousness, I'm going to get myself out of this sin. I'm going to work hard. I'm never going to deal with this sin again. And I don't mean in terms of being disciplined. I mean in God is going to see how good I am at holiness, how faithful I am like other people. But the problem was we were so awful that Christ himself, the Father's Son, had to die for our sin to be dealt with. The self-righteous person who thinks they can get out of sin by themselves doesn't get that. But the second part of that coin, the shame thing, is really the one that really doesn't get this. You know, so many of us grew up in church and we know verses like 1 John 2, 3, for example, which says, By this we know that we've come to know God if we keep his commandments. And so we think to ourselves, okay, I believe in Christ, but I don't keep all of God's commandments, and therefore there's no way I could be a Christian. So we know verses like that, and we get guilty over verses like that, ignoring the verse that came before it. Because the verse that came before it says this, if anyone sins, which is everyone, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We get so obsessed with trying to fix the sin we're stuck in, we don't realize that sin has already been atoned for, all of it. It is so similar to the first in trying to get deep down in your heart to tell you you can't earn forgiveness. God is a doctor who only accepts patients who admit that they are sick and they can't get better without the medicine that only Christ offers. God forgave all of our sins, all of them. Here's the third one. And I think, again, it results and gets right back to the same issue, which is this. Remember that God's love is not dependent on me. God's love is not dependent on me. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, 6, and 7, 
In love, God the Father predestined us for adoption to himself as sons, which means way back before any of us existed, God determined, if you believe in Christ, that you're going to be my spiritual family member. He didn't go forward to see if you'd make a decision. He made a decision before you existed to say, I'm going to draw this person to myself. They are going to believe in me and they will be part of my family. Not when they started believing, but from the moment they were born. But they're only going to realize it later on. We've been predestined for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. There's a lot of complicated language there, but he's saying two things. Number one, you are loved. And number two, God's love for you didn't begin when you decided it began. The moment you believed is not the moment God started loving you. God loved you before the earth was created. That's what it means that you were predestined for adoption. That's what it means that it was according to the purpose of his will. Here's the problem. On a really good day, we can feel like God loves us because we've done good. On a really bad day, we think God doesn't love us because he hates sin, which is true. God does hate sin. What's not true in either case is that you changed God's opinion of you. God's love is not dependent on your performance in the same way that your parents' love for you is not based on your performance. God the Father, before anything existed, called you spiritually to a place where you would be faced with a decision. Is all of my life and all my righteousness before God, is it completely dependent on Christ or am I going to try and do it myself? And for all of us, who recognized the overflowing grace of Christ, you don't need to worry about changing his opinion based on what you do. Now listen very, very closely because I'm not saying that sin isn't important. I'm not saying that sin isn't devastating. I'm not saying that, as according to Paul said in Romans 6.1, let's just keep sinning so that we get more grace. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is when you sin and you realize that that is cosmic treason against God, Christ already died for it, and he still loves you, and it has not changed. And that's not just a grace to you, that's a command. You must believe that. I love the way one pastor, his name is Drew Hunter, he put it this way. A significant part of the Christian life is simply getting used to the fact that God actually loves you. Freely and from his heart. And he always has from eternity past. Do you believe that? When you sin and you feel the guilt of it and you want to clean yourself up, do you think that God will start loving you and blessing you when you change? It's actually the opposite. If you can change, if you start to notice the small changes in your life, you might be seeing evidence that God already loves you. When God loves you, he shows you sin. He shows you the guilt of your trespasses against him. And then he shows you that all of it has been dealt with by Christ. God doesn't love you because of Christ. He loves you and therefore he sent Christ. Here's the fourth one. And we'll... 
start wrapping things up with this one. The fourth truth of the gospel that you need to remember is to be rest assured that God is not finished with me yet. And I'm saying me because you need to say that to yourself. Rest assured that God isn't finished with me yet. Here's a verse from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23 to 24. This is Paul talking to the church in a city called Thessalonica, which is actually one of the most faithful churches that Paul ever talked to. And yet he doesn't commend them for their righteousness in themselves. He thanks God in Christ that the Spirit gave them the ability to be righteous. And then he ends his epistle saying this, Now may the God of peace sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says this. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. What will he do? He will sanctify you. You are growing. Because Christ has promised you will grow. God has made a promise that he won't just accept you as you are. He will take you and then he will change you. You will come in weakness and sin. You will have your eyes awakened to the reality of that. He will help you understand the need to be on your knees before him. And then he will lavish his love and grace upon you so exponentially, so radically that you can't leave differently. And every time you come to the gospel, that becomes sweeter and it glorifies God. And that progress is not something that happens because you're faithful. It happens because God is faithful. Because God has promised you will change, you will change. And just like his love for you, there is nothing you can do to change it. Nothing. I want to wrap this up by reading you two quotes that talk about this idea of you changing because of God and his promise to change you. The first one is from our own pastor, uh, Josh Mack, and he says this, I'm not confident that you can change because of what I know about you. Instead, I'm certain that you can change because of what I know about God. To say that you can't change is to say that the great plan of God will be thwarted by you, that the grace of God is woefully inadequate, and that the promises of God are lies and that the commands of God are futile. Do you think any of that is true? Do you think that God's commands don't apply to you? Do you think that God's promises are lies? If you don't think that's true, then never ever say, I can't change. Here's the reality. Most Christians don't struggle with every sin the same way. There's usually one or two. If I say you're a sinner and you say yes, you will normally think of one or two things that you struggle with a lot. But if you are a Christian, if you love Christ, if you recognize that you are only right with God because of Christ, you can care about holiness so much that you can look at one sin and not realizing there's all of these other things over here that God has been changing. And you're so upset about this thing over here, you don't actually realize that God's promise of change has been working out in your life. Now maybe it's hard to notice because you haven't been preaching the gospel to yourself. You haven't been going back to this truth that God has promised to save you and change you. And therefore, I think it's good to go to this second quote, which is from a man named Milton Vincent, who wrote a small book called The Gospel Primer, which is a book written for Christians to keep remembering the gospel. Not unbelievers, Christians. And he says this, The gospel is so foolish, according to my wisdom, 
It is so scandalous, according to my conscience, and it is so incredible, according to my timid heart, that it is a daily battle to believe the full scope of it as I should. Basically, he's saying the gospel is so amazing, it's sometimes hard to believe. The gospel is so good, and I'm so sinful that sometimes it's hard to accept. And yet, we must do this. He says, there's simply no other way to compete with the fears of my conscience, the condemning of my heart, and the lies of the world and the devil than to overwhelm those things with daily rehearsings of the gospel. This is what he means. Sometime after the sermon ends, and in the days following, you are going to sin. And you are going to tell yourself, a Christian wouldn't sin like you would. Your guilt is never going to be cleaned. This is what you must tell yourself. I have no guilt before God. This guilt is real because sin is real. But the same God who is offended by my sin sent his son to die for my sin. And the same God that calls me to live a perfectly righteous life has allowed Christ to live that life for me. That I might live a righteous life not because I need to earn salvation, but because Christ has already given me salvation. When I tell myself that God is not pleased with me, I need to look at Christ on the cross and say, that is not true. If you can do that, if you can simply accept that the true gospel is amazing, you will never, ever want to look at anything else. You won't want to remember anything else. You won't want to rehearse anything else. Because it's more beautiful than anything else. And if you preach the gospel to yourself, you will see in radical ways it is impossible not to change. Preach the gospel to yourself. Father, the gospel is too beautiful and too wonderful that someone like me could ever be able to say it properly uh, or to be able to articulate it with all of the beauty that surrounds it. But Father, your gospel is clear to those you have called to yourself. I pray that these students would not be overwhelmed or shut down by their guilt. I pray that um, if there's stubbornness in their heart, that they might give something to God, that you might eradicate that. That you would reveal to every single person, whether they have never accepted the gospel, or whether they have accepted the gospel, but they are living in the way the world has told them to live. If the world has seduced them to think that they can be good enough, or that sin doesn't matter, that they might return to the truth that you have done everything we need for salvation. That you can change us. But yet you do that after you have already forgiven us. After you have already adopted us. After you have already justified us. And as a result of that, Lord, you have not just called us to get the gospel as a get out of jail free card. You have called us to accept the gospel that all of life might be one joyful life in expectation of returning home. To see you face to face. The Father who sent his own Son to die for us because he loved us. And the Spirit who awoke our hearts to see Christ that we might come to him and receive the adoption that you provided before creation began.
Father, don't let us slip. Don't let us slide. Don't let us rely so greatly on changing that we forget that our capacity to change was bought by the blood of your son Christ. Father, don't let us ever get past the gospel. Revive our hearts that we might see you appropriately and transform radically. Not because of what we can do, but because of what you have done for us. Father, I pray all of the truths of this series might be clear to our students, but most importantly, the truth of the gospel would be more clear and more bright than any of them. And that you might reveal that the gospel is enough for all of us. And we pray all of this in your righteous name. Amen.